0: Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. The state of Maine, where I happen to live, has the highest rate of cancer in the country. Every year, from 8,000 to 9,000 people are diagnosed with cancer. Maine's largest healthcare system, Maine Health, recently got a $10 million grant from the Alphon Foundation to expand access to cutting-edge treatments and clinical trials. Here with me to talk about the importance of this grant and also new approaches to preventing, diagnosing, and treating cancer is Dr. Scott Remick. Dr. Remick is the Chief of Medical Oncology at Maine Medical Center, which is a member of Maine Health, and he's also the Chief of the Cancer Care Network. Welcome, Dr. Remick. Now, I want to talk to you about the grant and what it will provide, but first, I need to ask you, do we know why Maine has the largest rate of cancer in the country? Maine
1: certainly has one of the, uh, among one of the highest rates of cancer in the country, and there are ready explanations. Uh, you know, Maine has a population of about 1.3 million, and the per capita rates or gets you anywhere from the 10th, 11th, 12th highest incidence rates or mortality rates in the country. Maine is, un- unfortunately, has one of the oldest demographic profiles in the state. I think it might, in fact, be the oldest state in the nation in terms of the median age, and the simple truth is, is that cancer is, by and large, a fundamental disease of aging. So as the population ages, you have a greater risk of getting cancer. There are many other influences. Uh, unfortunately, we have amongst the highest rates of cigarette tobacco consumption in the country. There are significant rates of obesity. There are occupational exposures. A great deal of our the state economy is based on the seashore and then you have exposure to sunlight and UV. And for those various reasons, they they all contribute to the high cancer uh, incidence rates in our state.
0: Of course, we don't see a lot of sunlight, but when we do see it, we take advantage of it, don't we?
1: Yes, the the, the fishermen, you know, any kind of exposure of the sun, even though it's not a sunny day, can present risks.
0: And now I read that lung cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer are among the highest that we see here in this state. So that makes sense with what you said. What do you think the biggest challenges are in, in general when it comes to treating cancer? Well, one
1: of the biggest challenges is, is a, a fundamental challenge is what we're arguing on a national level, discussing on a national level, is really the, the cost of care. Our technology, our understanding of the biology of cancer is exploding. We are in the midst of a biological revolution in cancer medicine, and for that matter, many other areas of medicine. So we have many new drugs, we have many new technologies that are brought to bear. We're understanding new ways to treat cancer, and this really drives up the cost of care and the complexity of care. And that is further compounded in a state like Maine, as I said at the outset, with a population of 1.3 million, it's a relatively small state, it's a sizable state, and it's very rural. So access to care, cost of care, and access to care are probably two of the biggest challenges we face in providing cancer care to residents of Maine.
0: And I know that even if you do have good insurance, cancer treatment can bankrupt some people.
1: Absolutely. And in, in my career, we are now talking about, you know, obviously, you've probably heard of, you know, when people used to get chemotherapy, a couple things would happen that happened to everybody. They would get uh, their hair would fall out. They would have lowering of their blood counts their white count, their platelet count and the red count, get infections and bleeding uh, complications, get sores in their mouth and diarrhea. So those are traditional side effects of chemotherapy. And now in the modern era of cancer care, there are many new drugs, but we actually talk about at our national meetings, financial toxicity. Hmm. This is a very real and palpable problem is that the cost of cancer care, as we know it, is really not sustainable. We have to figure this out.
0: So what's on the table?
1: Well, what's on the table? There's a lot of things in terms of how we go about it with with third-party providers or payers, and, and how we, as a as a as a academic community or clinical community, American Society of Clinical Oncology. One of the ways about going about it is really trying to develop pathways, and because we have all these guidelines to just illustrate the the evolution of the biological revolution, if you will, or evolution of the disease is. You know these past this past year in 2016 there were about 23 drug approvals by the fda um and some of those more than half of those were new drug approvals and the other half are a new drug but approved for a different disease so a modification of the approval and there were periods of time in my career where we go seven or eight years before we get one drug approval and already they're on pace at the FDA to approve more drugs than that than the past year. So it's virtually impossible to keep up. We now have molecular signatures of, of of cancers that help guide our therapy. And with all these different drugs that are approved, you have very complex guidelines. And what we're what many big centers are doing and what all cancer providers are being asked to do is to develop care on a pathway. Take the regional epidemic or burden, if you will, of your disease in your region and tailor your pathways to, uh, to the appropriate drugs or drugs that you think are, are appropriate.
0: So you have to bring that right down to an, an individual level, really, right?
1: You ultimately bring that right down to an individual level. You know, We're going to be biopsying people more regularly to look for changes in their tumor expression that might be selected by a, a drug therapy. We have to figure out how to maximize a a molecular signature of a patient's cancer to a drug that's on the shelf. What oftentimes people don't understand, and I emphasize even to my colleagues in training, you know, we can figure out prognosis. You know, basically uh, two things a cancer patient really wants to know. The first question they want to know, Doc, can you cure my disease? And the next question is they want to know, Doc, can you treat me as close to home as possible? That's what they really want to do. So we're pretty good at prognosis, and much of our molecular understanding or more of our understanding of biology of cancer, we can fine-tune our prognosis. But the more important parameter in contemporary cancer medicine now is what we call predictive prognosis or predictive uh, variables. The doctor wants to know that if you pick off a drug off the shelf, does the drug have a high likelihood of working? The time-honored approach of that has been, for instance, the estrogen receptor for patients with breast cancer. So a woman who has estrogen receptor positive breast cancer has a better outcome, that's prognostic, is also predictive because historically we would treat a woman with tamoxifen and now we have a whole host of other hormonal therapies. So when we're, I'm writing drug prescriptions or my colleagues for oral medications or IV medications that can run anywhere from 150 dollars to $200,000 for a course of therapy. Wow. It's extraordinary. So you want to be sure that if you're going to write that drug prescription, that you have a high probability that the drug is going to work. And that's what we mean by prediction or predictive marker.
0: Now, we, we know so much about genetics these days. I mean, that that kind of research has exploded. Can you look at a person's genetic profile and sometimes be able to predict Um, whether or not they're going to react a certain way to a certain drug?
1: We're down that pipe, too, with, with certain types of genetic profiles that has to do with how the body handles the drug. There are some genetic predispositions that might make a drug a little bit more difficult for a patient than otherwise. But more importantly, we are clearly examining tumor tissue biopsies up front, to see if they express different markers that we call are actionable, meaning is there a mutation, is there a rearrangement, is there a fusion, is there some molecular abnormality that can be tailored to a given drug that's approved. And that's very, very important. And then you weigh the different options amongst the drugs with the pathways because you're gonna look at a drug, you're gonna look at a drug to see how efficacious it is. Is it really a very active drug or is it only a modest improvement? Then you want to look at well, what is the side effect profile? If there's a modest improvement, but there are very few side effects, maybe that's an acceptable alternative. And then you look at the cost of the drug. And this is now this has really become a patient-provider, patient-doctor societal partnership to really understand individual patient choices. They need to be informed of the options, and they're. Physicians all over the country now that are guiding patients on treatment based on affordability of treatment. And you have to drill down to the the underpinnings of the biology of an individual patient's cancer.
0: Let's take that a a step further. Are you talking about precision medicine? I came across that term.
1: So that's exactly what they mean by precision medicine. It's also kind of called uh, personalized medicine, but it, it is absolutely precision medicine Now, I want to be careful because it it does mean more precise treatment, but a lot of our older drugs, you know, affected the DNA or different parts of the DNA or different parts of the cell cycle. So you could argue that those are precision drugs, but they have a more broad side effect profile. But basically what we mean by precision medicine or personalized medicine is that you're sampling the tumor at time of diagnosis, getting a molecular signature on it, and different tumor types have different drugs, have different targets that may be more actionable than others. Not every tumor has the same spectrum, but that's exactly right. You're looking for a precise mutation in a person's tumor to guide the selection of a drug.
0: So tell me a little bit about immunotherapy. So
1: it's totally different, and it's a very important question. That's a great question. I think it's best now in today's parlance, if you will, to talk about anti-cancer therapies or systemic therapies as in one basket. And generally, when we talk about chemotherapy, more often than not, that's the traditional cytotoxic type drugs where you would have hair loss, nausea and vomiting, and lowering the blood counts. Then you have these smaller molecules or targeted therapy that hit precise abnormalities in, in a cancer's makeup. And immunotherapy is just exploding. And the fascinating thing about immunotherapy is that immunotherapy does not directly attack the cancer cell. What it does is it boosts the immune response to the cancer. So the drug is not immediately treating the cancer. The drug is, in often case, in, uh, more often, the types of drugs, these different checkpoint inhibitors, we call them, They release the brakes on the body's immune system. So the immune system now can recognize the tumor cells as foreign and tax the tumor. So all these therapies are anti-cancer. They treat the tumor. Some therapies target mostly the DNA, the older therapies, different types of uh, mechanisms in DNA or RNA, uh, chemistry, biochemistry. The newer drugs, uh, the, the oral agents, I'm talking kind of globally, kind of attack specific pathways that we know. And then the immunotherapies are blocking the inherent immune response. So now you can recognize the, the patient or the body can recognize a tumor as foreign or activates the immune response in other ways. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: What, what are some examples of cancers that you might treat with immunotherapy?
1: So One of the things we're learning about immunotherapies that's quite striking, that it appears to be active across many tumor types. It's a little bit unusual and it, when you have a new drug. And then on top of that, you do see responses. Sometimes you can see some significant responses and durable responses, meaning patients can survive for a much longer period of time if they've had a good response to immunotherapy. So we're really on the threshold of really trying to understand how to harness that response to therapy and how to identify patients who are really good, potentially good responders. And that we're just beginning to understand what might be good predictive markers for using immunotherapy. But for instance, small cell lung carcinoma, melanoma, Hodgkin's disease, many tumor types, certain types of colon cancer, uh, uh, across the board, many solid tumors respond to immunotherapies. And we're beginning to really understand what are the parameters that might predict that response.
0: Do we better understand what might turn on or turn off a gene that might predispose you to a certain cancer or perhaps protect you against a certain cancer?
1: Well, we're learning a lot about different, uh, there, there are heritable Uh, There are heritable cancer syndromes where you uh, have an oncogene that's passed from generation to generation. Uh, A good example of that is the BRCA1 and 2 uh, genes that are particularly prevalent in Ashkenazi Jewish populations and uh, represents a small percentage of women that get breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So that is uh, basically what we call a germline mutation. You're asking some very Good questions. I don't want to confuse your audience. They're basically two types of mutations. And we talk about a germline mutation. That's a potential mutation that leads to, that can lead to cancer that's passed on down the generation. The majority of cancers are caused by somatic mutations. Those are mutations that occur after conception, if you will, later in life in adulthood. And those Mutations, those somatic mutations, predispose to development of cancer. Now, what you're asking, there could be lifelong uh, and environmental influences that impact. We know that the the environment you can have uh, changes to the DNA that are influenced by environmental changes, by aging, by different chemical exposures, or just uh, you know, in some cases, the inadvertent uh, you know. uh, problems with DNA repair. That there's a problem that just isn't isn't repaired that leads to a mutation or s- sustainable or abnormality that gen- generates to uh, to a cancer.
0: Yeah, there, there's so much that we know now, and there's so much still that we don't know.
1: Yes, so you can't you know you can't walk into a clinic. And what we can do is we can look at the immu- the genetic profile the, of a patient and see if they have one of those heritable genes. And that's where we can guide effective screening strategies and or prophylaxis, where a woman might have a mastectomy or a patient that has a high risk of a family history of colon cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, might at some point have under uh, an elective colectomy, have their colon removed.
0: Which is why it's, a, it's critical to know what your family history is, if you can.
1: Yes, it is. It's very critical to understand that. And there are experts, uh, there's specialists who can assimilate that history because it's very difficult. You begin to see why a network becomes important because it's very difficult for a primary care physician to assume that responsibility. That if they identify a patient that has a, a big history of cancer in a family, it's appropriate to refer that patient on to a program where they deal with that. And they can take a more careful history and map it out, and then do some studies. You know, do some blood work.
0: So, in addition to all these advances in the treatment of cancer, what about advances in being able to diagnose cancer earlier?
1: Well, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of emphasis. It's also a very contemporary discussion that uh, there are screening strategies that are evolving. Uh, evolving, uh, been some have been with us for a long time, and they're still evolving, and some are being newly developed. And I think there are some uh, effective strategies uh, to screen in the effort in the hope of identifying cancer uh, at an earlier stage and or preventing it. A good example might be colon cancer. There's very good data now that suggests that patients generally over 50 years of age, maybe if you're uh, a black or African American heritage, you might, depending on the risk profile, you might start a little bit earlier. Generally, on the age of 50 and above, you should be screened actively for colon cancer. There are many ways to screen for colon cancer. One of the ways is to undergoing a colonoscopy. Now, if you do a colonoscopy, you might see a small polyp, and by identifying a polyp, you can remove it. So, in, in point of fact, that is a prevention test. And then, generally, you have a colonoscopy about every 10 years. Other ways are to test your stool for blood. So that's more a detection test because then you're identifying a lesion in the colon that might need to be evaluated because of the blood or DNA that's shed into the stool that's indicative of a colon cancer. And the hope is you've identified that earlier.
0: Well, I'm like a poster child for having a colonoscopy because um, I did have a polyp on the first one. And I chose to stay totally awake for the first one, because I like to know what's going on. And the gastroenterologist literally did a little dance. And he was saying, Diane, Diane, you are the reason why we do colonoscopies. Uh, Because it was identified as one of those polyps that would likely turn into cancer at some point. There you go. Yep. So...
1: There's a big national move uh, championed by the round table, American Cancer Society and many stakeholders that we want to screen 80% of the eligible patients by 2018. Right. And I think we will see a dramatic decline over time as screening becomes more widespread in the incidence of colon cancer and, more importantly, uh, the, the decrease in mortality from colon cancer. That's what really proves that a screening strategy is effective.
0: I'm curious, when you decided to become a medical oncologist, a cancer specialist, what did you imagine it would be like?
1: Well, so that's a a great question because I I say that to my colleagues that I had, you couldn't conceive, I couldn't conceive of my career thinking about where cancer medicine is going. So we're on the threshold of really changing uh, our approach, at least in terms of the treatment of cancer to, uh, you know, we're going to be making cancer, a, in many instances, a, a chronic disease, something that may not be a disease, that illness that may not be immediately life-threatening. I mean, if you look at, say, colon cancer, the median survival when I started my career, not quite 30 years ago, with patients that had metastatic colon cancer, would probably be on the order of, of, uh, of a year, maybe 12 months, Patients now with metastatic colon cancer are living two to three years, the same for breast cancer. You could do the same for kidney cancer. Patients with stage four lung cancer, stage four metastatic lung cancer, you would have five-year survival rates on the order of three, four, dare I say five, less than 5%, and with some of the immunotherapies and where we're at, the long-term responses or durable responses we're seeing, you're seeing a 16% five-year survival rate. So you're starting to see perturbations of the tail of the curve where people do have the potential to live longer. And once you see changes in median survival from a year to two to three years, now you're seeing meaningful, really significant improvements in, in outcomes and survival.
0: Which is wonderful, wonderful news, but also means that you have to kind of tailor the services or the resources for patients um, to help them be able to... Live their lives, I would say to the fullest. You know, people are now surviving longer, but they're surviving with cancer. And that's a certain or different level of care that you have to be able to provide, I think. Support, social services, palliative care.
1: You're absolutely right. That's a very important observation as well, because now we are faced with many patients that are surviving much longer and or in fact have been cured of their cancer. And because these are not necessarily easy therapies, there are oftentimes late sequelae or complications or toxicities. So there's a whole new, not the least of which is the relapse of the cancer or a secondary cancer. The treatment is directly related to a secondary type of cancer, particularly say lymphomas or leukemias in particular but you're growing up now a whole specialty or discipline around survivorship cancer survivorship to deal with the volume of all the patients that are living and surviving longer with cancer you know common side effects particularly in children might be neurocognitive changes you know people come to you and say well you know, I just don't think quite as well as I used to I'm not as alert you can have cardiovascular complications that can show up late term certain drugs in particular radiation to the chest Endocrine problems. It goes on and on and on. So there's a whole specialty that's evolving that's de- devoted to the survivorship of the cancer patient.
0: Well, let's talk now about this ten million dollar grant that the Maine Maine Health got. Maine Health is a large system of hospitals. I believe there're maybe eleven, mostly in Maine. There's one in New Hampshire Memorial Hospital. Um, there's also private practices. Pretty big network. Does this $10 million grant affect that entire system?
1: Yes, it does. And it's it's nice how we've, you've teed this up because you've talked about where contemporary cancer care is going. And what we hope to achieve in the network is improve access. We And we need to look across the spectrum of cancer care or the continuum of cancer care, not just from the standpoint of diagnosis. We have to look at the front end where we can promote wellness programs where we can promote effective screening strategies. Then we have to develop programs uh, that we can get patients back and forth for the right care at the right place as close to home as possible when they're diagnosed. They need to have access to state-of-the-art care and clinical trials. And then at the back end for patients that have done well or who are surviving living with cancer, we need to support their survivorship and we need to provide very effective compassionate transition of care for palliative care and end of life. And that's what's so exciting and so vital for the Alphon Grant, that it's providing some needed investment to get this network up and going in in a more facile way to provide some of these resources for patient navigation, social work, genetics, clinical trials access, computer IT infrastructure, where we have gaps in physician uh, specialty areas some funds to help us recruit pa- uh, physicians into the network it's 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 a shot in the arm in many respects mm-hmm. but as i said at the outset you know it, we're particularly challenged in a rural state like Maine to get patients care and as i said the patient wants to know can we be cured doc or can i be treated at home that's the two critical pieces they want to know
0: so you have the cancer care network the main Health Cancer Care Network, and what this grant is allowing you to do is to expand that network.
1: It's allowing us to ex- not necessarily expand it, but provide some needed investment to jumpstart the network. Because at the you know, this, the, the network took form in, in late 2014, we arrived in late 2015. The, the organizations have agreed to uh, a shared investment in the network to drive our budget. We had outside consultants in 2013, and for the sake of our presentation here, I mean, the numbers could change over many years, but we were targeting a $5 million investment that we needed to support the network to begin to develop this integrated care delivery model. At the outset, the organizations made a commitment to contribute $1.1 We now got up to $1.7 and with the Alphon grant now, we get an additional $2 million. So you can see the increment gets us up there much quicker. And the goal is that by the end of five years, we will be whole. We will have a budget at the network level on the order of $5 million. And five years from now, it should be more. It also provides us an opportunity to seek other funding, to, to seek other partners uh, to this network. That's that's also
0: important. So the partners are Maine Health, which includes includes all of the hospitals and um, private practices that belong, and it includes Dana-Farber.
1: Dana-Farber is part of of the network. They're a very strong uh, affiliate of ours. We're just uh, meeting with Dana-Farber, and we hope as as this relationship matures, there's going to be a lot of interactions, and the affiliation will get stronger. For the time being, what we're looking at is that we wanted our consultants uh, identified a need for us, to, uh, for Maine Health, the Maine Health Network to identify a, a, a leading national cancer center, a, tertiary, a quaternary type center, uh, and Dana-Farber is about as good as it gets, if you look at our market research and, and regional name recognition, all fingers, all, all arrows or whatever pointed towards Dana-Farber, they're one of the preeminent cancer, uh, NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers in the country, mm-hmm. and the top cancer centers in the world. So by virtue of affiliating with them, we hope to provide opportunities for seamless transition of care from our network to Boston for highly specialized care if they need it. There are no doubt rare tumors that we don't have the expertise to treat and they need to be in Boston for second opinion consultations that sometimes patients are desirous of. We want to get them back and forth. And we hope to really build access to clinical trials not only in Boston, but here, particularly for early phase one and two drug studies. Early phase studies are types of studies that we really can't do here in Maine. And we'd want to get patients down to Boston to avail themselves of those opportunities. At the same time, we're building up our own clinical trials capability. So it's an enormous opportunity for us, and we also feel it's an enormous opportunity for Dana Farber.
0: So I would suspect that Maine Medical Center, which is part of Maine Health, and it's a huge hospital, a huge medical center. And there's another one in Maine, in Augusta. Maine General has the Alfond, Harold Alfond Center for Cancer Care. I would assume that you're already connected pretty well with Dana Farber. At least you have a direct line.
1: Yes, that's been going. We've actually been working with our physician liaison. We brought a physician, dedicated full time physician liaison for the system, for the network, Joe Coyle. We've already, in advance of the announcement, we've already streamlined some of those connections with our colleagues at Dana-Farber and throughout our network. So that is operational before we went live with the announcement. And as we grow the network, uh, you know, as you outlined, there are two principal uh, hospitals that have the most capability within the Maine Health Network, the Maine Medical Center here based in Portland, uh, which has enormous capability. The only real uh, capability it doesn't have is we do not do bone marrow transplants anywhere in Maine. And given the state demographic profile, we would not do that. And then the anchor of the network in the northern part of our footprint has to be the Alphon Cancer Center. So you said at the uh, outset of our our show, our interview, is that uh, on average, there are more than, in Maine, the state of Maine, there are about 9,200 cancer cases. More than 9,000 cancer cases are diagnosed annually in the state of Maine. If you look at Maine Health, two thirds two-thirds of those patients, more than 6,000, will touch a Maine health site. Maine Medical Center sees a third, over about 3,000. Maine General sees over 1,000 cases. And those are the two largest hospital centers in our footprint. And the idea is if we develop this highly integrated care in the rural uh, hospitals that are closer to Augusta, we want to have some elements of care there, and the same in the southern part of the state, and if patients need anywhere to get down to Boston, we have that facility to do that.
0: So walk me through how having this cancer care network might help an individual patient.
1: Well, it helps an individual patient because now we're all working together. We've been working together, but now it's it's officially launched. So in a rural community, through our physician liaisons, through our nurse navigators, through our network of providers and cancer specialists, we can connect people to get their therapies as close to home as possible. We are developing electronic tumor boards throughout the network. We have criteria for what groups of patients should be discussed at a higher level where we all can agree upon where the optimal care or surgical procedure can be given. And we're working as a team, and we have some investments to, to facilitate this, to get people back and forth. So it's not inconceivable. A patient could be presented at a tumor board, could could theoretically have a procedure at their local hospital or needs to be referred on to Augusta or needs to be referred down to Portland and if that's a if they have their surgical procedure then they get back home and it depends upon where's where home is they can get their chemotherapy closer to home at a facility and or we hope to have a more robust offering of trials where they can also get treated on a trial closer to home
0: so one of the keys is so it's a truly coordinated care model
1: a truly coordinated care model where the patient can gain access to any of the main health sites. And at the really, really small sites where we're going to have real traction and support for the patient in the community is to support the, the, the wellness programs, the screening programs, initial diagnosis of cancer, the survivorship programs, and then the palliative care end of life programs. Uh, and then other some hospitals don't have any capability to give chemotherapy, and they probably shouldn't because they're too small. And the smaller hospitals will, may not have the range of surgical opportun- uh, opportunities or range of services, so the patient gets referred up. And if we're, we're, we're making the commitment to the patient, wherever they access, we want to provide the best care that we can at the right location and the, the commitment to get patients back home. Uh, as soon as possible. And we have that commitment from Dana-Farber as well. They wanna see our patients. If there's things that need to be done in Boston that simply cannot be provided in Maine, that's fine. That's what we have to do.
0: Pretty ambitious, but critical.
1: It is very ambitious, but it's gaining traction. And there's the commitment of all our hospital organizations. And we have to do this because as I said at the outset, the cost of cancer care is prohibitive. And if we don't become more integrated, we, we have to approach the care of cancer patient in Maine health in an integrated fashion. Our payers are going to expect it the federal government is going to expect it this is where it's all going. And if we don't provide these avenues and try to identify efficiencies and, and pathways and, and routine care, it's going to be very difficult. So this is something the, the Maine health is absolutely committed to.
0: I must say the Harold Alphon Foundation, Uh, Harold Alphon himself, he passed away from cancer, I believe, but a pretty generous man, a pretty generous family. To take a look, um, they funded the Harold Alphonse Center for Cancer Care. They're funding this. I know they fund a lot of um, colleges, sports programs. So we're lucky here in Maine to have them.
1: We are very lucky. And I think that they realize there's an opportunity here that goes beyond just brick and mortar, which is something prideful of. They've made enormous investments in central Maine, and rightly so. but this is something that has a potentially has greater impact for, for more mainers. and it's, it's extraordinary. It's a very gracious gift. They have tasked us with a, a lot of accountability, which is terrific. There are things we have to do and we will do them. And it brings together the resources of the system, the Alphon Cancer Center, Maine Medical Center, and a very strong partnership with, with Dana-Farber. It's, it's a wonderful recipe and it's before us and uh, we're working hard to really provide every opportunity for a patient that's diagnosed uh, cancer. You know, one thing we even haven't touched upon is the Alfond Foundation has supported the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor with the launch of the Maine Cancer Genomics Initiative and that's a very powerful initiative that gets to the heart of the genomic challenges we talked about Uh, at the outset, where cancer care is. And and this grant and the Jackson Laboratory is partnering with all medical practice in the state of Maine, beyond Maine Health, to provide uh, genomic testing for 600 Maine cancer patients a year for the next three years, for 1,800 patients.
0: Well, we've touched on a lot of topics here under the umbrella of cancer. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you expected me to ask you or you wish I had asked you?
1: Uh, you know you've covered we've covered the waterfront. Uh, you know cancer is is a big challenge. The cancer burden in the state is significant, and it's a public health challenge. And I think you eased out uh, what we're trying to do in Maine health and importantly, how we're trying to be responsible, uh, responsible to our patients, responsible to our payers, and socially responsible to provide access to patients so they can get the best cancer care. We're on the threshold of really growing this network, and the Alphon foundation is is helping us get there.
0: So I'd like to end with some advice from you. When it comes to trying to prevent cancer in the first place, what are your best recommendations for us?
1: Best recommendations, I think, are to be informed with what your individual cancer risk is. That changes over lifetime. It changes over exposure. So that really is a discussion that a patient is going to undertake with their primary care provider or their primary health care provider. And simple things, you know, wellness, Eating well, exercising appropriately, not smoking, getting vaccinations up to date, being careful with uh, sun exposure, common things. You know, human behavior is hard to change, but there are a lot of things we can do uh, as patients, as caregivers, to really try to keep patients and families informed about how best to, to, to live an active, healthy lifestyle.
0: Are you more hypersensitive to that, being in the field you're in?
1: Uh, yes, to a certain extent, it is, it, it, you know, we, it, it's very difficult, as I said, to change human nature. And I, and I think there are indices now that, you know, smoking rates are on the decline. Uh, obesity is still a big, big problem. But there's a lot of things we can do together. And, and health care this day and age is, is really it's a partnership. The, the patient or the individual has to assume some responsibility for their care with a strong physician strong health team provider. It's no longer a one-way. It's a bi-directional interaction between patient and their physician. and that, That's the way healthcare is evolving.
0: So none of us patients should fear speaking up to you doctors?
1: No, they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. A sign of a good physician should be, be receptive to any patient, confronting them with, with some difficult choices about lifestyle changes or things that they have to do or what they shouldn't do or any questions about anything regarding their healthcare, forget cancer. And I think most physicians will be appreciative of that.
0: Well, we'll end on that note. Thank you, Dr. Remick. I appreciate the time you've spent with us. I've been talking with Dr. Scott Remick. He is Chief of Medical Oncology at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine, and he is Chief of the Cancer Care Network for Maine Health. And I'm Diane Atwood. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast For more health reporting that makes a difference, be sure to visit my blog at catchinghealth.com.